glass, I'm pretty handy. Welcome to Season 4 of the Barfly Podcast. So My name is Jeff Berger, Barfly columnist for the Bay Area News Group and author of the books 20 Years Behind Bars and its sequel, Parole Denied. My co-host and barback is Kevin Glenn, editor of the online entertainment hub, The Marine Dish. So sit back and enjoy our little peek behind the hospitality industry crew. Oh, and don't forget to... Have a drink on me. Welcome back to the Barfly Podcast. We are delighted to have Tonia Pitts on the podcast today. Tonia is the sommelier and wine director at One Market Restaurant in San Francisco. She's also a wine consultant and industry expert and was just recently named the best sommelier wine director of 2022 by Wine Enthusiast. Not too shabby. She's been kind enough to take time out of her busy schedule to chat with us today. So welcome, Tonia. Hi. Hi, hi. How's everybody today? <laughs> it's too early to tell, but so far so good. <laughs> I know. And it's not raining. And it's oh, not raining. Thank goodness for that. And we have no technical issues. Life is good. I just wanted to start off with, you know, like when, when you're growing up, some people, they want to be a doctor. Some people want to be an astronaut. Did you always know growing up that you wanted to be a sommelier? No. Oh, gosh. I started out thinking that I was going to be a lawyer and was actually in university in a pre-law program and found my way into restaurants this summer before I was starting my freshman year. Was very lucky to be around people who were industry professionals. The restaurant that I went to go work in was owned by a female chef who had come back to St. Louis from living 10 years in Provence to start her her own restaurant. And friends from around the country and around the world came to help her with that. That is how I got into food and wine, was just kind of starstruck. Family meal and wine with family meal. And although I couldn't drink, I could sit and listen to the conversation. Even then, there was this part of me that was really intrigued and, and interested and fascinated, but I didn't know that it was going to be my life's work pretty much. Right. No idea. In some ways, you know, a, a lot of people don't recognize that, that uh, it, especially in, in upper end restaurants, it's like Anthony Bourdain's show every day. They don't realize that those kinds of conversations, people sitting around the table talking about food and wine and having that kind of enthusiasm happens every day in the restaurant business. That's certainly at certain levels. It really does. It's, it's not pretend. It's it's real. It's a true profession and art form. Once I got through that phase in my life, I decided that I didn't want to go to law school anymore. This was three years in and decided that I wanted to continue to pursue art. That's what brought me to San Francisco. I applied to the California School of Arts and Crafts And because I wasn't a resident, I had to wait a year to get any financial aid. So what do I do? I go work in restaurants. That's where I've been ever since. Started working at Zuni Cafe, then Stars Restaurant with Jeremiah Tower as well, Loretta Keller, whom I met at Stars and went to work for her at Bizu. You know, the rest is history. Did not look back. I fell in completely headfirst. And it goes back to when people listen to you talk about food and wine, the first thing they say is, wow, I want your job, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which that's only part of it, right? There's also the business of running a business. And I remind them of all of that. And they're like, huh? I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you have to make a living. All has to make sense. 
right? Still a job. You know, they call it work for a reason. Exactly. One of the things that that uh, I think people sometimes get confused with is that is the difference between what a wine director is and a sommelier. And so, in in your opinion, what what is the difference, or is there a difference? It depends upon the restaurant and how their organization is set up. You may work in a place as a sommelier that does not have a wine director. And therefore, you are running the program, you're doing the ordering. Sometimes people will also call that person the wine buyer. And that's when certifications and things like that kind of kick in as well. Although there are those, especially back in the day, where people didn't get certified through the the court of master sommeliers because that was something that was really very new for us here in the United States. The wine director pays all the bills for the wine, does all the ordering, does all the inventory, and basically is the checks and balances. That is the person that goes to the PL meeting for profit and loss and is responsible for all of that. Kind of the chef of a beverage program. Basically, yeah, yeah. You know, and depending upon if they have a team and they are teaching and mentoring, then some of that responsibility will fall upon their teammates, but it's all because they're teaching them so that they can go off into the world and have a different position somewhere else or later on there. That's how that works. That's how it's always worked, at least in my mind, anyway. The sommelier idea of actually having a degree is, like you said, in the United States is a relatively new idea. I mean, Mm -hmm. some of the greatest sommeliers uh, in United States history probably did not have the certifications that you see now. No, they did not. You know, that's really something that's been in the last 30 years, technically, but there's been more of a push, I'd say, in the last 15 most definitely in the last five, it's the aspiration for folks is to become an advanced sommelier and then become a master sommelier. Because a lot of people, you know, when they think of a sommelier, they think of the taste of vin and the whole, you know, kind of the French aesthetic of that. But the modern sommelier is not really like that. People, you know, I've talked to say they, you know, they're intimidated to call a sommelier over. And my argument is you shouldn't, they're there to help, right? Right. I don't wait to be called over. I assess the room and I look at body language. As soon as someone picks up the wine list or starts looking at by the glass, I give them a few minutes, then I go over and I introduce myself and I strike up a conversation. That's how you ease into things. You make it non-intimidating for people. You're there to support and to make sure that they have a really wonderful experience. Enjoy a glass of wine or a bottle of wine or even a cocktail or a beer. You know, I'm not just there for wine. I can help with all beverages. In that way, you have to make people feel comfortable. Tonya, when you come to the table uh, after reading the room and reading the body language, which by the way, I think is awesome. What kind of questions do you ask then? First of all, they're probably looking at you saying, why are you talking to us? But uh, once they figure out who you are, uh, what kind of questions are you asking them when, you know, to try to help them find what they want? So the first thing I say is, let me know if you have any questions about wine or beverages, and if I can help you in your decision making in any way. And then they're like, oh, the surprise lets me know that it's never been put to them that way at all. And then depending upon what people will say, sometimes they'll say, well, I don't like Chardonnay. And I said, okay, you don't like Chardonnay. That means you don't necessarily like wines that are oaky because that's usually what Mm -hmm. most people think Chardonnay is. 
super oaky white wine, right? And mm-hmm. then we'll start talking about maybe a Sauvignon Blanc that I have by the glass, or maybe even something from somewhere else, maybe even a Caracante from Sicily and start talking about that. But I make it very short. You don't want it to be really long because you don't want people to lose interest and you don't Mm -hmm. want to talk at people, right? I make it so that it's not one-sided. It's kind of a back and forth banter because it's a conversation. It's not about me. As I always tell people that Mm -hmm. it is not about me. I'm merely a vessel. It's not set up for my palate. It's set up to pair well with what is coming out of the kitchen with chef and it's all seasonal. And then people say, well, what do you usually drink? I was like, well, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's the end of the night, think of it as being (laughs) the end of the day and having a beer or something like that. But as opposed to having a beer, I'm having something light, refreshing, and a glass of white wine. That's what I'm having. It could be champagne, it could be bubbles, but it's usually white wine. And that's me. And they're like, wow. I'm like, yeah. That's me. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a human being. Yeah. <laughs> it, it all depends on the person working behind the bar. You, do, you kind of do the same sort of thing where, you know, well, more importantly, what do you like, right? Mm-hmm. Because people ask you that all the time. And, and, you know, sometimes I think they're just trying to relate, as you're saying. And it's that back and that, that, that playful banter, that, uh, that, that con- continuing conversation that makes those things fun and interesting, I think, for both sides. And that's how you win customers and win friends. They come back to see you. It's about comfort, right? I mean, in the bar there, the classic question is, what do you like? I like everything. Well, that's probably not true. You have to persevere and get through that to start having the real conversation. What what can I do to help you? I think COVID has wiped out some of that. I think just our industry... There's been a, a shocking, certainly in the from the mixology thing, you know, maybe not so much in the wine aspect of it, as a turn to the bartenders telling people what they want to do instead of the other way around. And I think that's a big mistake. I kind of felt like, and I and I still think this is true, because people were ensconced in their bubbles. They didn't know a lot about some subjects. They kind of dived in and started learning about wine and about cocktails and about beers. I call it the discovery phase, and they're still in that phase, and they're much more open to trying new things and experimenting at home. We've got home bartenders now who will not just do a simple gin and tonic, but will create a cocktail for themselves or Mm -hmm. wants to come in and have a conversation with you about wine or about gins or about whiskey or, you know, tequila, mezcal. That's not something that Mm -hmm. we would see readily. That was kind of a once in a blue moon sort of thing. Now I think we see more of that. It's not just the millennials and the Gen Zs either. It's kind of across the board, I think, because people were taken Mm. out of their comfort zone because of being cut off from everything. There's this thirst for knowledge. I'm I'm pun intended, I guess. Uh (laughs) But uh, but at any rate, but this idea of of bringing a background of information that they already have to the conversation, which makes it a lot easier, certainly as a professional to provide something for them because they, they, they can explain, they can talk about things, they understand what some of the products are, but even still, no matter in, you know, what's the old saying, no matter how much we know, we don't know everything, right? It's always, it's certainly with wine in particular, it's a much more difficult thing because vintages change. So the wine isn't always the same, even year to year. And that's a huge amount of knowledge. You have to understand and relate. 
Well, that's when we start talking about climate change and global warming and <laughs> and all of that stuff, because I do bring that into the conversation when we start talking about vintages, because it's important. And that's affecting wine all over the globe, not just mm-hmm. in our own backyard, which it's is pretty big in our own backyard between that and the fires and and everything else. And just making sure that customer and the consumer realizes that it's not a formula and it is not going to taste the same every year. There is going to be some variation and some difference and some difference of the blend per se in the wine or just even where it's being taken from within the vineyard to make it taste the way that it does. I don't get too geeky, but sometimes I do talk about clonal selection and things like that. <laughs> it depends upon the person. That's right. not for everybody, yeah. you know? But if somebody wants to nerd out, we can nerd out together that way. <laughs> <laughs> I started some of my restaurant career at, at Lark Creek Inn, then uh, One Market opened after that. So One Market, when when I was working for the ALCI, was a, a, ra- a brand new thing and the whole ferry building area had been quite a bit different than it is now. But things have changed. I've noticed even now that uh, One Market's menu seems to be different than it used to be. Uh, could you uh, explain a little bit about some of the changes that have happened at One Market? First of all, COVID happened, pandemic. Yeah. You know, we used to and have always celebrated the high Jewish holidays and wanting to do something different and creative uh, during that time of being on hiatus, so to speak, but to offer comfort food to people. And Jewish food is comfort food. We Mm -hmm. came up with Mark and Mike's. It's the Jewish deli, some of people's favorites. Also adding some of the favorites from um, the regular menu at One Market. And that is what we offered during the pandemic. And when we did open back up, we decided to keep some of those items because our guests wanted them. You know, the matzo ball soup is there. The Reuben sandwich is there. Latkes as well. Mm-hmm. But it's there alongside with fried chicken, which is something that we've never had in the restaurant before, but we can't take it off now, right? Chef's pork tenderloin is still there. And then all of the other specials that he's come up with over the years and and new items as well. And it's all it's all there. But it's confusing sometimes for people because they're like, okay, I'm here for Mark and Mike's. And they're looking around and they're like looking for the <laughs> deli case, right? Right. <laughs> no, no, no. It's on the menu. It's here. It's, it's a part of the restaurant as well. And then we go into the whole story of coming up with the concept during COVID. And it's still being there as a part of the menu and offerings for people. They can have it any time of the day. They can even order bulk items, which we call Feed the Family, and come and pick that up and have things at home for the week if they would like. So it's been pretty cool. It really has. What, what would you pair? What kind of wine would you pair with uh, a latka or a, a matzo ball oh, soup? Wow. So with matzo ball soup, I would actually pair dry Chardonnay with matzo ball soup. I actually have the House of Brown Chardonnay right now by the glass, which goes really well with matzo ball soup. And with latkes, I actually have bubbles that I like with that. Right now, I've got the Collet uh, Premier Cru Brut that I pour by the glass. And if you don't want to be super fancy, a dry Prosecco goes really well with it as well. I'd like to do kind of unusual pairings too, I like to call it. Mm -hmm. Give us an example. Well, first of all, people wouldn't necessarily 
think of having bubbles with luck mm. at all. But because of the crunchy and the fried latka, the potato, the sour cream, and the applesauce, it plays really nicely. And then we have mm-hmm. what we call loaded latkes. You can do salmon. You also have kind of a freestyle Reuben as well, mm-hmm. which definitely I'd have with some red wine, just for happy hour even, because they're on the happy hour menu too. You can have it anytime, anywhere in the restaurant. It's interesting because those have actually sold better than the slider hamburgers that we used to have. They're also a lot more fun, I think, too. And you also do uh, consulting as well, right? Because, like, you know, you, you do, apparently you don't like to sleep. You just like to work. <laughs> that has been said on me before, yes. So when you do consulting, uh, I'm uh, assuming uh, with different wineries, local wineries, and whatnot. Have you noticed any changes in the past few years? For example, like when you go to a winery now for a tasting, they provide, it's different than what it used to be where you'd come in and, you know, you, you try three different glasses. Now, now they are, they're offering experiences. I'm wondering if that's a fad or if that's here to stay. I think that that's here to stay. Depending upon which winery you would go to years ago, and I know this is what you're referring to as well, you could have that ultimate experience where they Mm -hmm. did offer paired bites, but that was an elevated Mm -hmm. experience, right? Now, I think that it's something that you're going to see more and more wineries offer, even if it's just a charcuterie plate or just something to put in your mouth to pair with the wine in front of you. It's really very Mm -hmm. much like teaching people about food and wine pairing as well. And putting the idea in their heads, which it should be anyway, that wine should be on the table with a meal. We as Americans don't necessarily all think that way. We see it as a beverage, Mm -hmm. but it really should be on the table with a meal because that's what it was created for. So I think you're going to see more and more of that, but I think that's how people differentiate themselves as well. Wineries through these experiences, they get people to come back time and time again based upon that. I have guests that Mm -hmm. I talk to all the time and they're like, oh, you've got to go and try such and such winery. They throw these really amazing parties and the food and wine pairings and they have themes and and that's how yeah. they garner clientele, just like we do in a restaurant. It's the same. They're applying the hospitality model to the wine business, right? Absolutely. We have to do something. You just can't wait for mm-hmm. people to come and purchase the wine either online or come to the winery, you have to have a draw and a reason also Mm -hmm. besides the wines being really delicious to come and spend time with you and to spend their money with you. It's a business. So don't worry about tomorrow. Take it for today. Please join us next time when we welcome Ken McKenzie, the CEO of Fresh Victor, to talk all fresh juices and all fresh mixers. My name is Jeff Burkhart. Thanks for listening. 